Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the wonderful gift of your word. We thank you that it contains everything we need to know to find salvation in Jesus. But more than that, we pray and thank you uh, for the way it equips us now to live as saved followers of Jesus. And so as we look at this uh, tricky part of scripture tonight, we pray that you'll help us to understand it correctly. But more than that, we pray that it will impact on the way we live. Uh, And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Over the years as I've shared the gospel with people, there's certain objections that people make. And they usually feel like, think they're the first person who's ever come up with this objection to the gospel. And they sort of think no one has ever asked this question before. Uh, And uh, until a few years ago, you could almost give them a list at the door and say, here here are the objections and now I'll answer them. Uh, And they were just set questions. And they were about things like, you know, can you really believe Jesus rose from the dead? Uh, or questions like why does a good God allow suffering and and these sort of questions and often what I'd find is that uh, people didn't really want to know the answer they just wanted to know that there was an answer and so as soon as you start giving an answer they go okay I'm happy that's okay now we'll go on if they were really interested in finding out about Jesus that is if they weren't interested at all it didn't matter what answer you gave they'd then say oh no but I've still got questions and and so forth but another question started coming up a few years ago that is now I think the number one question uh, you hear and when I first heard it I had no idea what the person was talking about Uh, and the question is I can't believe you Christians it's not really a a question actually it's an accusation Uh, I can't believe you Christians you're such hypocrites because you're against gay marriage it's amazing how that issue has become the issue that people want to talk about you're against gay marriage but you want to eat prawns and bacon I remember the first time someone ever said that to me and I thought what I don't understand and then because I can't help myself being a bit facetious I said do you know what I actually like eating prawns wrapped in bacon (laughs) so I'm even I'm even worse than that I I combine them together that you know even even worse I'm uh, I've been known to wrap anything in bacon actually but you know uh But then I worked out what they were saying, and you now know it's such a common thing now. You know what they're saying. What they're saying is, you Christians pick and choose the parts of the Bible that you want to apply and that you want to say still apply to us. And so you pick, you know, your opposition to homosexual practice, but you're happy to eat all the things that were forbidden in the Old Testament law, or you're happy to wear clothes that have two different fabrics in them, which is one of the laws of the Old Testament, or all those other things. And in recent times, you hear otherwise intelligent people make that comment and think that they have somehow dismantled the Christian faith and your right to speak. So you watch Q&A, I don't know if you ever watched that show. Don't. Anyway, uh, Victoria every time says to me, why are you watching it? You said last week you wouldn't watch it. And then I'm like a moth to the flame. I go and watch it again. Uh, and the people just annoy me because other people who in their fields are supposedly intelligent scientists and politicians, sorry, anyway, scientists and, and, and other people and authors or whatever. And, and then they go, oh, and a Christian point of view comes up because they talk about gay marriage every week on it. And a Christian point of view comes up and they say, oh, but if the Christians would just stop eating prawns and bacon, then I'd listen to what they've got to say. 
And, and then they sit back with this smug smile as if they've said something of Einstein level of intelligence, you know, and, and people sort of have a giggle and so forth. But it's such a silly thing. And, and a person who's been a Christian for a week can answer that objection. It's so simple, isn't it? The, the Bible has an Old and a New Testament. And if you're laying claim to any level of knowledge of our world, you should know that the Bible has an Old and a New Testament. And Jesus claimed that when he came, he brought in a new covenant, a new testament, which changes how the Old Testament applies to us. That's sort of the, the, the Christianity 101, simple Christian answer to that objection that people have. With the coming of Jesus, we are not under the Old Testament law. So we're not required anymore to keep the Sabbath. If you went and bought some hot chips for lunch today, you did not break God's law. You know, you're, you're not required to go to a temple anymore. And you're not required to sacrifice goats and doves and all sorts of other things that were under the Old Testament law. You're not required to abstain from certain foods. Now, I hope that every Christian knows that and, and understands that. And frankly, I'd hope that the skeptics and other people on Q&A and programs like that would be at least slightly well read enough to know that and I think often they actually are and they're just purposely being unhelpful but anyway that really is bible knowledge beginner level because that then raises questions for us doesn't it as you read the old testament which is you know nearly about two-thirds of the bible you sort of think well, well what role does that massive chunk of the bible have for us if we're not under the law anymore if we're not part of the Jewish nation that the, the, the Old Testament was focused on, then, then should we just tear that out and just focused on the, on the last part of the Bible, the New Testament? Uh, and what is the connection between the new and the old? And it raises questions about God. You know, did God change his mind? He thought, that's one way I'll do it, but now I've got a new, better way in the New Testament. And more than any other, this little passage that we're looking at tonight, so pull it out, Matthew chapter 5, it's only four verses. This little passage answers those questions. But I'm not going to lie to you at this point, this is a really tricky passage. You're going to need your brain to be switched on, you're going to need to have the Bible open in front of you to come with me on this. So if you want to just sort of sneak your hand up now and someone will run you a Bible, if you haven't got one in front of you, do that now. Uh, sometimes Jesus uses just, you know, these, these beautiful, simple images doesn't he where you know anyone just you you read out and you can walk away with the point and Troy a great sermon last week was a great if you didn't hear last week's sermon absolutely key to listen to that sermon for understanding the whole sermon on the mount but it was one of those passages wasn't it where Jesus just has this wonderful simple picture for us it's as, as a member of my kingdom you are to be a light in the world and the point is you're meant to be distinct you're meant to shine out you're meant to be different to the world around you and it's just it was just one of those beautiful images that Jesus does when he tells a parable or tells a story this is not one of those passages uh, this is a bit more complex so come with me into it let's go let's look from verse 17 he says don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets I did not come to destroy but to fulfill now, the law or the prophets is how they referred to the Old Testament. That's sort of shorthand for saying, don't assume I came to get rid of the Old Testament, is what Jesus is saying. So why would Jesus need to say that, do you think? Why would people who've come up to Jesus on the mountain to listen to him preach, why would they be thinking, this guy has come to destroy the Old Testament? Why would they think that? Well, that's what the Pharisees were saying about him. 
And frankly, if you read the Gospels, Jesus did seem to be encouraging people to ignore the law of the Old Testament, didn't he? So he's wandering along on the Sabbath, and any good Jew knew you don't work on the Sabbath, saw someone in need, heals them. The Pharisees say, you don't obey God's law. You're healing someone on the Sabbath. Or he's walking through the fields, his disciples are are hungry on the Sabbath, and Jesus takes some grain and gives it to them and says, eat. And they go, look at that, he's farming on the Sabbath. Jesus seems to be disobeying the law. And then Jesus was attacking the Pharisees. And he was saying, these guys are sinners, the Pharisees. But they were the ones who said, we base our whole lives on following the Old Testament law, even the most minute parts of it. So you can see why people were saying Jesus has come to destroy, get rid of the Old Testament law. But Jesus' answer to that criticism here is the absolute key to understanding Jesus and the Old Testament. So look at it again, back at verse 17. Jesus says, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus says, I haven't come to get rid of the Old Testament. I love it. It's, it's the word of my Father in heaven is what, what Jesus thinks of the Old Testament. But he says, I fulfill it. And that word, fulfill, is the key. Jesus fulfills, Jesus brings to completion the whole Old Testament. And in doing that, he changes how it applies to us, God's people. So how does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? This is where I want you to come with me on a bit of a journey and you're going to need your brain switched on. Uh, The New Testament, the whole New Testament is preoccupied with showing you how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And in some parts, it's obvious. So the predictive prophecies. You know when you go back to your Old Testament and you read a passage like Isaiah 53 and it talks about this one who will come and he will suffer and people will belt him up and then they'll kill him and he's doing that to pay the price for the sins of all humanity. You don't need to be a particularly intelligent Bible reader to say, wow, that is fulfilled in Jesus when he came and suffered and died on the cross. Or the parts of Isaiah that say, uh, one will come who is descended from David and he will be the king and the saviour of God's people. You say, oh, that is fulfilled in Jesus. Or when the prophet Joel tells you that one day a time will come when God sends his Holy Spirit on all his people. And then you get to the book of Acts and the resurrected Jesus sends the Holy Spirit and you say, oh, there is Jesus fulfilling that prophecy of the Old Testament. So it's easy to see how Jesus fulfills the prophets, if you like, all those prophecies of the Old Testament. But that's not all. And by the way, for me in becoming a Christian, back all those years ago, for me, seeing the way that whole Old Testament and all those prophecies found their fulfilment in Jesus, that more than anything was what convinced me to become a Christian. So if you're someone who's still thinking about, do I want to follow Jesus? Well, go to Christianity Explained then just have a look at the way this book written over a 2,000 year period by all these different human authors comes together in Jesus and I challenge you to say human beings made that up. Come and talk to me about it if you want to argue with me afterwards. I love having that discussion. But anyway, but that's not all. It's not just the prophecies that Jesus brought to fulfilment. Every aspect of the Old Testament finds its fulfilment in him. So I'll give you some examples. You know, in the Old Testament, there is all that talk about, first of all, the tabernacle, the tent, and then the temple, the big building. 
You know how in the Old Testament it says that is where God's people go to meet with God and that was the centre of, of their religious life, if you like. When the New Testament, in John's Gospel especially, Jesus says, you don't need that building anymore because I am the temple. And Jesus wasn't saying, I am a big building made of stone. He was saying, I am the place where you come to meet with God. If you want to meet with God, you come to Jesus by faith. And so when you read those parts of the Old Testament, you don't tear them out and say, Jesus has destroyed all that part about the temple. You read them and you say, now I understand what they were talking about. That they were getting me ready to know that Jesus would come and he would be the one I go to to meet with God. So you see, that part of the Old Testament, all that whole strand of teaching of the Old Testament finds its fulfilment in Jesus. Or in the Old Testament law, there's all that focus on priests. You know how you read about all the guys who are descended from Levi and how they are the ones who stand between humanity and God because we can't go to God directly, so we need to go through a priest. Well, now Jesus came and said, you don't need priests anymore. If you are ever tempted to call me, you can call me any name you like, as long as it's edifying and encouraging. You, you can call me any name, but don't call me a priest because you don't need a priest anymore. Because the New Testament says, Jesus is now the one priest who stands between us and God. You saw that in 1 John in your gospel teams, I hope, that he is our mediator between God and man. And what did the priests do more than anything else? What was their big job? It was a pretty good job. They were either a butcher or a priest. They killed things. And so you went to the temple and the priest, you gave him your goat and he cut its neck and just be thankful you weren't in Old Testament times because then he just threw blood everywhere, all over everyone. Why did he do that? It was to show them sin needs to be paid for. But we come to church, you come to church now, when was the last time we killed a goat? Up here at the front of church. Maybe we should do it more. No. We should never do it because we don't have to because the New Testament tells us Jesus is the one true sacrifice. And his death on that cross has paid for the sins of all of humanity for all of time. Which is why you don't need to kill goats and sheep, other than if you want a barbecue, anymore. You, you see, it finds its fulfilment in Jesus. When you go back and read those parts of the Old Testament, you don't say, oh, Jesus has destroyed that, now I'll rip them out and throw them away. You say, now I understand what they're talking about. They were actually pointing me forward to Jesus. And they find his fulfilment, their fulfilment in him. And it's the same with the food laws. I won't go into all that now. And every other aspect of the Old Testament. Now, each of those things I could preach a whole sermon on. But I don't want us to be here till late tonight. So I'm only just sort of giving you a taste and showing the wonderful way Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament, including the law. But then there's another part of the Old Testament law. And it's the part that the rest of this passage, and actually the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, focuses on. And it's what you might call the moral law. And we read a lot of that in the Ten Commandments that Tom read for us before, didn't we? It's things like, love God, love your neighbour, uh, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. God's moral instruction. And Jesus was at great pains to say, none of that changes now that I've come, I have not come to get rid of that because God is the same yesterday, today and forever. And God's moral standards are the same yesterday, today and forever. 
See, for 2,000 years, as society's moral standards go up and down and change and swing around and things that were opposed yesterday are in favour today and vice versa, that Christians are always tempted to then say, well, God's law must change to sort of fit in with society. Jesus says, no, 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 no. God's moral law is constant because God doesn't change. What God hated 3,000 years ago, God hates today. And what God loved 3,000 years ago, God still loves today. God does not change. So how then does Jesus fulfill the moral law of the Old Testament? Well, most fundamentally, Jesus fulfills it in a way that no other person has ever been able to do. Can you work out how he fulfills it? He does it, he fulfills it by doing it, by keeping it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, famous German Christian who stood up to Hitler and other things, famously said, Jesus has in fact nothing to add to the commandments of God except this, he keeps them. And if you've ever read the Old Testament law and been honest with yourself, you would say that is the most amazing fulfilment there ever could be. That Jesus alone of all humanity is without sin and keeps God's law. See, when we look at God's moral standards and look at ourselves, what do we see, if we're honest? We see failure. You see, we see our sin, but Jesus alone loved God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength, and Jesus alone loved his neighbour as himself. Jesus fulfills the law by actually doing it and living it and keeping it. But more than that, Jesus fulfills the law by showing us what it really means to keep the law in our hearts. And we'll think about that in a minute, because as I say, that's what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is all about. But this is, this is so important. For the last 2,000 years, in every generation, people have tried to suggest that Christians can ignore God's law in the Old Testament. Jesus abolished the law, they say. We just follow the law of love. It has nothing to teach us anymore. And they then use that to overrule the clear moral teaching of the Old Testament. You see, people trying to do that today with homosexual practice were doing it with other things 50 years ago and things before that 100 years ago, and they've been doing it for 2,000 years. And that is the point Jesus is making or opposing in verse 18. Look at verse 18. He says, For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. When will heaven and earth pass away? When will that happen? When Jesus returns. That's when there will be a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. So until Jesus returns, he's saying, don't you dare remove one dot of an eye from God's word. Don't you dare remove one little dash from a letter of God's word. Don't you dare take anything away from God's word until he returns. Then it won't matter because he will rule the world. And there'll be no more sin and there'll be no more anything. We'll we'll be worshipping God forever. But until then, not one dot of an eye should you remove. This is the word of God. And Jesus says, I have not come to destroy it or abolish it. I have come to fulfill it. There's one more thing we have to cover 
Stick with me here before we get to what this means for us. Because in other parts of the New Testament, we're told that in some sense, Jesus is the end of the law. So when the Apostle Paul tells us, like in Romans 10, for instance, that we are no longer under the law, what does that mean and how does that fit with what Jesus is saying here? Well, it's pretty simple, really. The point that the rest of the New Testament is making is the law doesn't apply to you in the sense that you are not required to keep it to find salvation. How are you saved? Is it by keeping God's law? It's by faith in Jesus, isn't it? The one who kept God's law. So you are not under the law in the sense that you are not required to keep it in order to be saved. And more than that, the punishment of the law and the condemnation of the law does not apply to you. See, the law says every one of us deserves death for failing to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and for failing to love our neighbour as ourselves. But because Jesus died in our place, taking the punishment the law demanded, the law no longer condemns you. That's what he means when he says you are no longer under the law. But God's law, like Jesus says in this passage, still speaks to us now. It still tells us this is God's standard for his people. As fulfilled in Christ, so as understood properly, as fulfilled in Christ, the law is still relevant. It's God's wisdom for us for how to live as his children. Now, I hope you found that helpful. I hope it wasn't too heavy for you on a Sunday evening. It's tricky, but it's so important. Uh, now we need to turn to thinking about what that means for us. So the first two verses we've looked at were about Jesus in the Old Testament. Now in the light of that, the last two verses are about us and the Old Testament. Someone said to me the other day, why are we looking at such short passages in the Sermon on the Mount? I said, do you want even longer sermons? But anyway, uh, so come with me to verse 19, us and the Old Testament. So it starts, therefore. So it's saying, because Jesus has come to fulfill God's law, and because he has not come to destroy it, therefore... Whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That is a very important verse, isn't it? How could anyone read that and then just say, I'm going to ignore the Old Testament? And even worse, how could anyone read that and then dare to teach other people to not listen to what God says in his word? See, it's not possible, is it? Jesus' point is, if God's word and God's law endures forever, then the great ones in God's eyes are the ones who love his word and read it and dwell on it, all of it. And the great ones are those who then seek to live by it. And more than that, the great ones are the ones who seek to share it, teach it to other people. And the lowest of the low in God's eyes are those who ignore God's word, who pick and choose which parts they want to take seriously and which parts they want to ignore. And even worse than that, those who teach others to do the same. Jesus says they are the least, they are the lowest. Now at this point, the people listening might have looked around and thought... If you just sort of think you were sitting there on the, server, on the mount listening to Jesus and they've heard him say, verse 19, about who will be great 
in the kingdom of heaven. And they would have looked around and they would have said, well, who is Jesus talking about? Who does Jesus therefore think is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And who would they have pointed at around them? Who would they have thought they are the ones who will be great in the kingdom of heaven? See, there's the Sunday school answer that's coming out and whispered from some people, which is Jesus. But I don't think they thought that about Jesus yet. Who would they have thought, therefore, if it's about keeping God's law totally and teaching others to do the same, who would they have thought would be great in the kingdom of heaven? The Pharisees. The Pharisees. You see, we're used to saying Pharisees equal bad guys. They thought they were the good guys. See, we think, you know, Pharisees are the equivalent of of sinners, but actually the Pharisees were the ones they thought were the most righteous. As they looked around, they said, well, the Pharisees, they take God's law seriously. They will be great in the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees had worked out there are 248 commandments in the Old Testament. They'd worked out a way to keep every one of them. And then they'd worked out there were 365 prohibitions, one for every day, except on a leap year where you had a day off. No, 365 things prohibited in the Old Testament law, and they had worked out we've got to keep every one of them, we've got to not do the others. You know. So the law said tithe, give 10% of everything you earn to God. They would walk out to their herb garden and cut 10% of the mint and take it to the temple. To give to God. 10% of the, I don't even know if they had deal back then, but you know what I mean. 10% of whatever herbs they grew in the ancient world. And they'd give that. That's how seriously they took it. Surely if anyone is called great in the kingdom of heaven, it would be the Pharisees. The law said, don't eat foods that the Gentiles eat. They said, all right, we won't even eat with the Gentiles. We won't even hang out with the Gentiles. If anyone kept God's law, it was the Pharisees. But then Jesus says something that would have been absolutely shocking. Look at what he says next. And it's our last verse for tonight. Verse 20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Just feel the full weight of that. Unless your righteousness not just matches, but surpasses the righteousness of the most righteous people you know, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine people's response at that point? I think at that point, Jesus lost a few people. Because they would have said, hang on, who, who can do that? Are, are there laws that not even the Pharisees know about? Do we have to keep even more laws than them? Are there prohibitions that not even the Pharisees know about that we've got to stop doing? How can anyone be more righteous than the Pharisees? But actually, it's not that hard to work out, really, is it? You see, the righteousness that God desires for his people is a righteousness that impacts the heart and that comes from the heart rather than one that's just skin deep. You see, the righteousness the Pharisees worked on was all about keeping the letter of the law and no more. This is the way the Pharisees worked. The law says, don't murder. Well, I haven't killed anyone. I hate a lot of people. And I say awful things about a lot of people, but I haven't killed anyone. Tick, I'm righteous. The law says, don't commit adultery. Well, I haven't actually done the act with that woman. I have in my mind, but I haven't actually done it. Tick, I'm righteous. 
The law says, love your neighbour. Well, that guy who's in need, he lives two houses away. He's not my neighbour. Tick. I'm righteous. See, despite all their talk about keeping... Before you judge the Pharisees, most of us are tempted to be Pharisees, aren't we? Most of us find that much easier than the sort of righteousness Jesus talks about. But despite all their talk about keeping the law, what they did was they would minimise it and keep it to its bare minimum and then take pride in keeping it. And so Jesus says, that is not the righteousness that God wants for his people. That is not the righteousness that marks people who are a part of the kingdom of heaven. God wants a righteousness that flows out of a changed heart, not one that's just skin deep. And so when God's law says, do not murder, true righteousness doesn't say, well, I didn't kill them, tick. It says, I need to work at forgiving them and showing grace to them, even though they are so hard to like. When God's law says, do not commit adultery, true righteousness doesn't say, well, I didn't actually do anything, tick, I'm righteous. It says, I'm not happy that I even thought about it. And I actually need to repent of treating people as objects to be lusted after when they are people made in the image of God. I need to actually clean my mind and repent of what I've thought, not just what I've done. And when God's law says, love your neighbour, true righteousness doesn't say, he's my neighbour and he's not. True righteousness says, they're in need, I can help, they are my neighbour. See, that is the righteousness that marks out a member of the kingdom of heaven. That is the righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees, that doesn't see God's law as some rules to be ticked off to earn your way into heaven, but instead sees it as a blessing to guide us in how to live to please God. Well, as I wrap up, hearing this radical call of Jesus should create two responses in us. And they are the two responses God wants from us. The first response is, and if this is not your response, I want to say to you, there's something wrong in your heart. So I'll just give you that warning as we start. The first response is we hear that call and we say, well, who then could ever enter the kingdom of heaven? Who then could ever enter the kingdom of heaven? Because if you look at God's law in the expanded way Jesus talks about it, impacting your heart and your mind, not just whether you can tick a box, and you say, yeah, I keep that, then there's something wrong. You, you, have, you are self-deceived. You don't know your own heart. I have sinned while I've preached this sermon. And I, I'm the preacher. I don't know what you guys have been doing. But I have sinned. Why? Because things go through your mind that are not encouraging, about, especially people with their eyes shut while I'm preaching. I have sinned against you and I need to repent of that. <laughs> I have thought bad thoughts about you. I'm sorry. After I said that this morning, about five people came up and apologised to me afterwards. <laughs> yeah, I'm only half joking. My, my point is, you come to church, you sit in church, and sometimes you have thoughts that are sinful. This, this is the thing. If you, if you are so deluded to think that you can keep god's law the sermon on the mount then i can't help you you see the the point of this is we say who then could ever enter the kingdom of heaven which drives us to say that is why i need jesus see that's the first response 
You see, he is the one who truly, truly did fulfill the law and then died to pay the price for my failure. And he takes my sin and yours upon himself and gives us his righteousness. A righteousness that truly exceeds that of the Pharisees. And that is the most wonderful news that there is, the wonder of the gospel. So the first response to this radical call of Jesus should be to make us say, I could never be righteous like that. So thank you, Jesus. And that's why I trust in you, because you are the one who makes me righteous. But then in the light of that, our second response should be to say, well, now, as a member of God's kingdom, through faith in Jesus, now as one of God's children, this is the type of righteousness I want to show in my life. I want to live God's way and teach others to do the same. Verse 19. I want to show in my life a righteousness that far surpasses that of the Pharisees. Verse 20. Not to earn my way into God's kingdom. I receive that by faith. But because I now long to please my heavenly father. See, it's so easy to become like the Pharisees, isn't it? It's so easy to be the person who just ticks the box and puts on a front for the people around you but in the secret of your heart or where people don't see you everything is very different see it's so easy to be like the pharisees and look for exceptions i've got a new phrase jason gave to me which is christian exceptionalism where every where christians like to say yeah yeah that's true for everyone else but i'm different it doesn't apply to me you see that is not the righteousness of the person who is a part of god's kingdom my prayer for us is we would be people who love God's word, all of it. And don't look for how to get out of it, but say, I long to please God and I want to live by every word that comes from the mouth of my Father in heaven. And I long and pray that we would be people who don't put on a religious and godly front, but instead we'll be people whose hearts and minds are shaped by the gospel. And the funny thing is, we go back to last week's passage, it's that sort of righteousness that will make us like lights in this world. People can spot the hypocrisy of Pharisees a mile away. But a righteousness that actually flows out of the heart and out of a desire to live to serve God, that is the righteousness that makes us shine like lights in this world. So let's pray and ask God to do that work in us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way Jesus speaks to us so boldly and so straightforwardly. And even in tricky passages like this, we thank you that we can grapple with it and understand it. And especially in the light of this passage, we thank you for your word, all of it. And we pray that we would not be like the Pharisees. Instead, Father, help us as we read your law to recognise our own sin, recognise our own failure, but then turn to Jesus and find the forgiveness and the righteousness that he offers as we come to him by faith. And now though, as forgiven sinners, as members of your kingdom, as your children, we pray that we would long to live to please you and that we would hunger to know your word and live it out. And that in particular, we would show a righteousness very different to that of the Pharisees. Help us to repent of the times when we are like the Pharisees and instead we pray that our righteousness would be one that goes right down to the heart and not just skin deep. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.